Well, well, welcome to Lab Life with the Air Force Research Laboratory. Hi, I'm Michelle. And I'm Kenneth. Today we are speaking with John Hoffman, the Information Systems Security Manager at the DoD Supercomputer Center here at AFRL. He was an aspiring video game program developer who instead decided to keep government supercomputers safe. In three, two, one. Welcome, John. Thank you. So starting things off here for our viewers, uh, they kind of want to get a feel for what you do exactly. So uh, before we kind of dive in, can you tell us in terms of supercomputers that raises a lot of questions, is it kind of like what we see in the movies or uh, what is the reality of working with one? So it, the movies don't get it exactly right. The movies, because they're a visual medium, really want to show you kind of what the internet looks like, what the computers look like. So they'll create all these fancy GUIs and make it real easy to interact with the system. In reality, when you're dealing with a supercomputer, it's all command line, Linux-based systems. So you need, really need to know how to type out the commands, work with it that way. And there are some applications where you can open up a GUI and kind of visualize your data. But for the most part, it's just text. Okay, so that's so your day-to-day -day then, uh, kind of diving into that, is much more working behind the scenes, not with, like you said, uh, fancy displays popping out everywhere. Yeah, correct. Okay, um, so kind of going along that uh, line then, starting a little farther back, what brought you into the world of uh, working in computer security or even getting to where you're at now? So originally I started off in college, I wanted to be a programmer. I got hired in by the Air Force to do a software development, and through that I found out that I wasn't really developing software securely. There were a lot of different functions I was using that could be exploited. So I moved from programming to secure programming. And then from there, it started to expand my um, mission. I started looking at, well, what are we doing with our web servers here at the DSRC? What are we doing with some of the applications that we have running on the system and how to secure those? And from learning all about that, I eventually moved into doing security full time and dropping kind of the programming part of my job. And eventually I was a information system security officer and then I became the manager. Okay, so in the beginning you weren't planning on working in security, just like you mentioned, more of a program. Correct. And do you find this field more uh, enriching or is it something you enjoy more than what you were working on? So I, I do enjoy it more. It's a much broader job, so I get to work not only with you know, securing the computer, but I get to learn about the facilities as well, the network, and try to understand how that all comes together in order to protect it. Okay, that's, I mean, fascinating. A lot of people do worry about, especially nowadays, security. So let's say somebody comes up to you and says, hey, uh, how do I make my computer more secure at home? Um, do you have any tips and tricks or things you've learned along the way to even just do uh, basic security for people? So the DoD puts out a thing called the STIGs, the Security Technical Implementation Guidelines. And these stigs will tell you kind of how to administer your computer, certain settings you may wish to turn off. And that's a good starting point to try to harden your system. Now, as a home user, I would not recommend just blindly following all those recommendations because that could hinder what you're trying to do in your system. But that would be a good way to start. Okay, cool. And I imagine you may get that question a lot from family members. I or? do, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. I can imagine. Um, I took not much programming in school, but enough for my family is like, oh, you're the, the guy who can go to this for like, you know, good old uh, troubleshooting, right? Yep. So I feel that. Kind of going back to uh, supercomputers then, specifically, um, what makes it super? Like what makes it better than a normal computer? So a supercomputer really contains all the hardware, software that's commercial off the shelf. The processors are Intel processors, it's normal RAM, hard drives, 
you could buy all those pieces online or in a store. What brings it together is the fast interconnect and the software that resides on top of the, inter on top of the operating system in order to use that interconnect. So within a supercomputer, uh, we generally look when we're purchasing to get a system that has under 2.5 microseconds latency end to end. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> that, so, that makes sense. Yes, yeah, so and if, if I have my, uh, if I remember correctly, when you're talking latency, especially on the internet, if you were to put a strand of fiber between New York and LA and have it straight line of sight up in the air, I think it's around 30 milliseconds end to end latency that you would, could go from uh, New York to LA. Jeez. So that's pretty slow. So that's milliseconds 10 to the negative third. We're talking 10 to the negative 12 power. Okay, well that, that definitely does literally quantify that so we yeah. can see. Um, so going along those lines, a lot of people may not have known that you can just build a supercomputer with off-the-shelf parts. Um, what are some other misconceptions that you've heard about supercomputers that you'd like to air out now? So a lot of times when people think supercomputers, they think um, that, oh, it's, you know, you can put things together, you can run a dis distributed system and make, and then you can make your own kind of homegrown supercomputer. It really revolves around having to have that fast interconnect, that software that uses the interconnect to be able to call it a supercomputer because you can still do other systems of distributed computing. Okay, gotcha. And uh, in terms of a lot of the power we have here, uh, working with a computer this large or this, like you mentioned, how fast it is, um, who are your normal clients or people who would use this computer for simulations? So our clients uh, pretty much are any DoD researcher. So we have uh, in-house DoD researchers, we have uh, those that are partners in academia, uh, the defense industry base, they all have access to our systems to run their calculations. Okay, and it's, is it only them, or could, uh, let's say, a civilian who may have a project have to apply a different way, like? No, it has to be a DoD contract. Okay, gotcha, that makes sense. And uh, in terms of using these contracts then, um, can these vary from uh, months on, or can they lease these things uh, for years to use? So every year we have our allocations that we hand out to the different services. So 30% of our, of our system goes towards Air Force, 30 Navy, 30 Army, and 10% general DOD use. So each service has a service agent who will help decide, okay, well, this program over here who's doing you know, flight data, they get to have so many millions of computational hours to use throughout the year. And they can then use that. At the end of the year, if they still need more resources, they can get those resources back the following year. And all these resources are free to the DOD to use. That's amazing. Going along those lines then, let's say uh, these sound like uh, these computers do get a lot of work. Um, what is the average life cycle for a uh, supercomputer you guys run with? So when we get the systems in, they're set for a four-year life cycle. Okay. So we, have, uh, we buy the first year plus three optional years, and at the end of those years, by that time, the hardware is old. Uh, it may not be, you know, the chips may not be manufactured anymore. So the cost to repair the systems as they have issues continues to go up. So at that point, we will retire the system and then offer it to the DOD academia partners that if they want to take the system from us, they can, but at no cost, but they have to then have a facility that can support it. That makes sense. And I imagine these things have to draw a lot of power to uh, keep them running. Yeah, so each of the systems, um, because of the limited power that we have, because we just don't have you know, infinite power to draw from. Yeah. When we put the call out to buy a new supercomputer, we limit it to two megawatts per system. 
Okay, gotcha. And our facility can support up to four systems, so you're talking about eight megawatts of power that we can support at one time. And if I recall, I remember um, I took a tour of the facility with you. Um, you had a huge, was it battery bank? Or, yes. Or, okay, and that, how does that work exactly to help power everything? So the battery bank is part of our uninterrupted power supply. The batteries will provide power for the system for up to five minutes. And then outside our facility, we actually have uh, diesel generators that will kick on and take over that load in about 30 seconds. So once those things are on and running, we can actually maintain power to the facility as long as we get fuel delivered to the systems indefinitely. Well, that's wonderful. So you have a good fail-safe. Exactly. So kind of going back to what you do day-to-day, -day, is your job, you'd say, being uh, the security system manager, more, you say, proactive, reactive, or is it just kind of monitoring and making sure everything stays cool? I would say it's a little bit of both. Part of our requirement for security, we have to maintain, uh, we have to do weekly scans, analyze those scans, see where we're missing, see if anything became misconfigured. With these systems that we have, when you do any type of upgrades, sometimes the operating system, when you upgrade that, likes to revert settings back to a previous state. Ooh. So we always want to make sure we catch those issues and fix them before it could affect the users. Also, could be more uh, reactive if something happens, let's say uh, a zero-day vulnerability gets uh, announced and it's in the wild. Now I have to respond to that. Okay, and that's something, so it's never anything, like too many uh, things out of left field, you'd say, per day. It's pretty, hopefully at least, like pretty well set. Like I know what I'm gonna do, I'm gonna do this scan, I know how to deal with this threat. It's Correct, yes. Okay. It's only those zero days that catch us every now and then. Yeah, that But that's sense. for anyone out there on the internet. Going along those lines then with security, um, that's, as you know, with technology evolving, that's also changing. So is there courses you have to keep up with, or is there just uh, your expertise, is it just you learn every day? or how do you keep yourself up to date? So part of the DoD requirement to be an information system security manager, I have to follow the uh, directive that is 8140, or the cybersecurity workforce. Okay. That requires me to have a computer security certificate, so I'm a certified information system security professional. And in order to maintain that certification, I have to take so many continuous learning classes per year, whether it be a SANS class, whether it be certified ethical hacking, or any other program out there in order to maintain my skills. That makes sense. And uh, what would you say is, uh, at least recently, is there something that you could impart upon our viewers that's a super important issue that you think should be uh, maybe brought up more in terms of security? I would say pen testing. That really needs to be a focus, if part of your security plan. It's great that you can follow the you know recommended guidelines in order how to secure a system, put the firewalls in place, but if you don't have a knowledge of how to actually attack from the outside, to try to mimic what an actual threat would be, then you really can't prove that you're secure. That's true. You said that was called pen testing? Yeah, penetration testing. Oh, gotcha, that makes yep. sense. Okay, cool, I, I was not familiar, so that makes sense. So are there programs then that could have you simulate um, your defenses, like a firewall, for instance, against an attack? Or is that just something you said you do research on to better understand? So I do research to better understand it. There are tools out there that you can use. One of the favorite, my favorite tools is Kali Linux. Okay. Uh, it's a great little CD distribution that can load up. It has a bunch of different tools in it that you can attack a system with. Uh, of course, you know, just don't go attacking any system. <laughs> that makes you know, sense. I do, it on, I do it on my network to my systems as part of, a, as part of the testing. Yeah, that could be startling otherwise. Correct, so. and very illegal. Yes, <laughs> okay, that, that's wonderful. So we kind of talked earlier about what got you into uh, the kind of uh, programming, but um, let's say uh, in your childhood then, like what brought you into wanting to be a computer programmer? Video games, definitely. I, I wanted, agree with that. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to be a video game programmer, and 
when I was looking to go into college and learning how to program, uh, I got to actually become familiar with a couple of developers from the Turbine Game Studios. And I was talking with the lead developer of a game called Ashron's Call, and she's like, you know, hey, you want to be a computer programmer, you want to pro program video games, that's fine, but here, read my blog because we have a high burnout rate. And as I was reading her description of what she's gone through, what her studio's gone through, and within the industry of being about a two-year burnout rate, mm -hmm. I was like, that's not something I want to be a part of anymore. No. I was like, I, I would rather have a more steady job. So I went from looking at trying to program video games to doing more just general software development, web development. Okay, gotcha. So um, that being your passion then, or at least where it started, uh, have you had a chance to maybe work on any like indie titles or still work with games, or do you kind of just play them and enjoy them? I just play them, enjoy them, but <clears throat> I have several friends that I've grown up with who are now developers, so every now and then I get to talk to them, see what they're doing. That's cool. And I've been, you know, had a chance to play a few games that were still in development, but other than that, yeah, I really haven't done any game development. Hey, still got to be a tester, though, so that's neat. Exactly. <laughs> when your uh, friends and family ask what you're doing then, um, you pretty have or a job, at least, that's um, describable in a pretty easy way. How, would, how do you pitch it to people, let's say, in a professional setting when they say, hey, with security, what do you do exactly with supercomputers? I would say my job mostly revolves around having to interact with all the different departments in order to s secure the entire facility, not just the computers, but the HVAC systems, the water supply, the electrical and power facility. So I work with the physical security people in order to make sure that the building's locked down correctly. I work with the sysadmins to make sure that they're applying the correct stigs, allowing them to make sure that they harden the systems in order to follow all the guidance set out by the DOD. I work with the information assurance folks to make to understand what information is on the systems because different information may require different protection. Okay. So you're much more than just software. You do have physical security you worry about as well. Correct. Yep. Okay. Yeah, I was actually wasn't aware that's part of the job. So would you say um, what's the split then working with the supercomputer software versus like you said more building uh, security? For my personal day-to-day, -day, I'm dealing, I would say 80% of my job is more dealing with the hardware software of the system. Okay. I really don't do too much physical because there is a separate department that does physical security, but I work with them to ensure that all our documentation, all our you know, scheduled weekly you know, audits are completed. That makes sense. So going more into or back to the system itself that you're protecting, what would you say is uh, some of the biggest uh, triumphs or uh, greatest moments you'd have from uh, working here with the supercomputers? Back in about, I think it was 2017, the Department of Defense uh, released a new memo saying that we will migrate from an old type accreditation system to the new risk management framework, which is developed by NIST. It's their special publication, 800. And so my center, I was the first person to go under this new method of securing the systems in my uh, DOD program that I am a part of. Okay. So we were the first ones to uh, be evaluated. We actually had a very good evaluation. We learned a lot of a lot of different techniques we might need to apply, different areas that we need to focus on that we may, may not have focused on in the past. Oh, that's fantastic. But I saw as well in terms of success stories, I heard there's an anthrax protection program you guys worked on. That was a really interesting program. In the wild, if a soldier was exposed to anthrax, in order to help fight the infection, you'd have to take a sample of the anthrax, grow it in a Petri dish, test it against different antibiotics. 
in order to know what to give that soldier. Yeah. Well, what they've been able to do is taking photographs under a microscope of these anthrax spores and looking at the different physical characteristics. And they were able to take about 16 or 18 physical characteristics and whittle it down to six that they need to focus on. And then they know, based on those six characteristics, what antibiotic to use. So therefore, you're talking going from maybe about 48 hours down to almost immediately being able to start the treatment. Well, that's amazing. So, and this is something you guys would run through the supercomputers uh, in conjunction with them, or is this just a test to see if they have the framework for it? Uh, so this was the uh, researchers doing the research on our system. Okay. Yeah, I wasn't sure if you were saying they were calling you, like saying, we have a case, could you run this real quick? But that makes more yeah, sense. Yeah, so we don't provide any, we don't run any of the uh, research, so we're, we just enable the researchers to use the systems. That's awesome. Um, so other than that, when it comes to simulations then or other programs you've run, um, what would you say is the largest or most ambitious program you guys have uh, ran before? So it may not be the largest, but one of the most ambitious ones, we were recently working with a company who had a toolkit called the Systems Toolkit. And this toolkit allowed you to kind of maybe design like satellite constellations in order to fulfill some mission. Yeah. This system was only used on Windows desktop computers. And they were the company was looking to expand it to Linux and specifically supercomputers and how they can use it to do more robust data calculations, do it faster. I was teamed up with a group over at AFIT and we my center assisted them in moving the system from Windows to Linux and onto the supercomputers. And what we found out in one of the test cases, the researcher was able to do his research in three days compared to 88 years on his desktop computer. So you're talking 80 years down to three days. That's huge. And not only that, but with his uh, assignment, if they just want to make, a, you know, get 100% of all the requirements, this thing would have cost about $3 billion annually. Oh my God. But by doing literally millions of calculations, looking at how they can adjust it from, you know, geosynchronous orbit to low Earth orbit to ground-based stations and find the proper configuration to lower the cost, he was able to say, hey, I can provide a solution at 95% that's only $1 billion a year. Well, that's amazing. I mean, you touched on, uh, in terms of success stories, I've also seen a lot for dollar savings, and that is a testament to it. That's exactly. incredible. Um, so that's, is that kind of a big thing you can tell people then, saying if you literally want to save time and money, like you can work with us? Oh, absolutely. Every year, you know, we give these cycles out for free, and the research that can be done on them really saves time. One of the big things that we do is uh, flight testing on our systems. Okay. So in order to do a flight test, you're talking about a good number of years ago, you'd have to develop a model. You'd have to schedule time in the wind tunnel. You have to put the model in the wind tunnel, see if it works. And in order to get that time in the wind tunnel, you're talking six months, maybe a year out. And those models can cost you know tens of thousands of dollars. And if you put the model and you find it doesn't work, well, now you need to go back to the drawing board, develop a new model, wait another six months, develop another $10,000 model, push, push that in there. Well, you can do that all in the supercomputer at once. And you can adjust the parameters run it multiple times over the day and see what works. And if you have something that works on the computers, you can actually then say, okay, well, this is probably the correct solution. Let's go ahead and make just one model of this, test it out without having to waste all that time and money. That makes sense. So kind of going more into the system as well, um, let's say if you had a dream scenario where you could run anything you want on the system. Uh, is there any simulation, uh, software, or something you'd want to do, given the chance? Two things I would say I'd like to do, again, 
and the supercomputers are not necessarily good for this because they don't have a lot of GPUs. Yeah. But I'd like to see just how much Bitcoin mining I could do on the system. <laughs> that would be one. That would be interesting. The, uh, the next thing I'd like to do is some of that deep learning that uh, Google has with their uh, applications yeah. and see, just to see what I can do with that. That'd be interesting. Have you been approached about anything along those lines before or any kind of programming like that? So some of our researchers have looked into that. I have not worked directly with them. Okay. But I know they have been looking at the Google applications in order to do some of that deep learning. That would be fascinating. So um, the last question we have before we dip into some fan questions, uh, we've been trying to kind of cover this through most of our guests to get a good feel for um, just uh, what people enjoy about it, the Air Force. So I was going to run by you. Uh, do you have any favorite piece of uh, technology that's been produced or made by the Air Force? I would have to say my favorite piece of technology is the A-10 uh, aircraft. I just love that aircraft. It's reliable, it's cheap to fly, and it can do a lot of damage. And the sound it makes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I actually was just at the um, museum today and got to see the A-10. And it's the joke my friend and I always tell is it was just the aircraft built around a gun. Because yep. <laughs> you can see the inside. It's wonderful. Um, cool. Uh, so we're going to dip into some fan questions now. Um, these were uh, all gathered off social media. So the first one we have is from Arjit Das. He was asking, HPC is expensive. Uh, we have community solutions like Hadoop. Uh, is that how it's pronounced? Yes. Uh, Hadoop. He was saying the Hadoop distributed file system, does it have any place in the com uh, computations being done uh, on your side? So I, I would say yes, it does. Within supercomputing, there's kind of two schools of thought. You have one type of calculations where you have maybe a small job you need to run, but you need to tweak the parameter a million times where you don't necessarily have to rely on that fast system interconnect to get it to get it done. And so something like Hadoop could be set up, you know, in your lab environment to where you can just distribute the data over, you know, 100 different servers and get that those calculations completed. However, we also have uh, systems where they're trying to do flight testing. So you're talking about taking maybe let's say an airframe and having a million points on it and you're trying to fly that aircraft in this virtual environment, and each point on that aircraft is another compute core. Okay. And those different cores have to talk to each other in real time, and you need that fast interconnect in order to properly simulate that aircraft. Um, the next question we have then is uh, from Sir Robert Brooks Othament from Brick, it looks like Brick House LTD. In what ways will the further spread of the fog or mist computing and embedded wetware, uh, human domain systems, irrevocable ch irrevocably, excuse me, uh, change the age of cybersecurity as we know it? We're talking really here about the Internet of Things. You have different pieces all over the person, and you're trying to get the data from the human to maybe intermediate systems to eventually the far end. And really, it's going to make us have to look at how we can properly encrypt that data in transit without slowing it down. Because encryption does provide some overhead, and if you're talking literally millions of warfighters out there, all with their little sensors on them, trying to send data all back at once, that could be just too much over a network. And it depends on you know how robust that network is too. If we can find a way to encrypt them without necessarily slowing it down, that would be a, a big success. Okay, and just to explain to some viewers, because I just learned this today, um, what is fog and mist in comparison to the cloud? When you're talking about cloud, you're talking about the servers that are in some facility that are away from the user. So you're 30,000 feet up in the air is where the cloud is. The fog and mist are talking about bringing different devices, different servers down to a lower level to where it can interact in between the cloud and the user. So John, to wrap things up here today, just want to run by you. Uh, was there any general security uh, 
points or tips you have for people before we sign off? So my tips would be you have to really try to stay up on the different attacks that are out there. Uh, things are constantly changing, new zero-day exploits are happening. Unfortunately, we're seeing that we can no longer trust the hardware. Recently, we've had uh, Spectre and Meltdown where it shows that the Intel chips are insecure. So when you're talking about trying to secure a system, if anyone has physical access to the system or is on the system, they can exploit those, those uh, vulnerabilities. So you just have to be more cautious of who you let on sometimes. Also, you have to do a lot more auditing in order to ensure that someone's not doing something nefarious. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Make sure to follow us on social media at Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, and YouTube at AF Research Lab. And remember, stay curious. Logging off.